0: I want to open with you the Bible today to Mark chapter 12. We're going to read the very last story in that chapter of Mark's gospel. And uh, before we do that, I wanted to just mention to you that a number of you um, who are part of the church and who are receiving, therefore, the communications will have noticed that there was an email uh, this week just announcing our plan to begin to regather as a church and to begin to um, restart some small socially distanced services from the 6th of September. I want to encourage you if you haven't already done so to just watch the video that I sent out to uh, describe and explain what's going on. Um, I know that a number of you who are tuning in on Sundays that are not part of the church or not here in London, I want to reassure you that we plan to keep Uh, the live stream going for the time being. Uh, It's certainly the case that we've not returned to to anything like normality here in London. And um, even if we are able to gather in some way as a church, it's not really um, like it was. It's not like we've returned to normality. So we're going to carry on doing this for the time being. This will still be our primary way that we uh, worship together as a church. And if you are um, outside London or indeed not part of Grace London but have been been worshipping with us, then we'll be able to continue doing that for the time being. Now I want to read to you from uh, Mark chapter 12. We're going to read verse 41 to 44, the very last story in that chapter. And in fact, this is the last moment of Christ's public ministry in the gospel of Mark. The first 12 chapters have recorded for us um, the many ways in which he's interacted and preached and ministered to the public. Um, throughout these three years from roughly age 30 to age 33 in his life and as you know we're now in the last week of Jesus' life and whereas uh, Mark has moved rapidly through three years of Jesus' ministry Now we zoom right in and he moves very slowly through this final week and we've encountered Jesus in these various conversations up to now as he's in Jerusalem and he's anticipating prophetically his arrest and his crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead which will all take place toward the end of this Passover week. But here is the final moment in which Jesus is ministering publicly and and, and speaking and, and teaching in a public way. And it all takes place like this. It says, and he sat down opposite the treasury. So he's in the temple courts. And watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow, has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, as you can tell, the subject that we are thinking about today is the matter of money, and particularly of giving. And I, it's worth acknowledging right at the outset that this is a risky subject to deal with at any time, but especially uh, when we are uh, engaging in worship in this way through the medium of um, the live stream and through YouTube. And I say that because, partly because whenever you're dealing with a difficult or sensitive topic, um, it's easier to handle these things in the flesh and in person when we're in a room together and to speak honestly and openly and to raise uncomfortable matters in such a way that we can all sit and pay attention and weigh what's being said. This is a much more difficult dynamic through the medium of this lens which is in front of me and your TV or your laptop which is broadcasting to you because it's so much easier for you if there's discomfort to tune out or to switch off and I'm just acknowledging that right from the outset. And I'm also aware that there's something in the nature of this medium which doesn't work to my favor, given that TV has been so abused by some of the grubbier parts of Christianity to, um, to try and get money out of the hands of the poor just to make certain uh, so-called pastors richer. And uh, I'm aware of that dynamic and of the history of how this medium has been used. And I just want to acknowledge it up front and recognize that, therefore, this is already we're on a difficult footing if we're talking about money and giving, and we're doing it with this limitation. And, of course, this is only amplified by the fact that I'm British, many of you in our church are British, and in British society, it is impolite and awkward to speak about money matters. And so all of that needs to be said up front, but there are a few reasons why I think Um, We need to be conscious that of how important this is as a moment in Mark's gospel, but also within the broader context of the teaching of Jesus and why this needs to arrest our attention today. And just to speak very generally, of course, when you read the gospel accounts of the teaching of Jesus, one of the things that you will notice is how he he very frequently and deliberately speaks into the subject of money and possessions and how he, he never hesitates to do so. There's no awkwardness there 's no lump in his throat there 's no embarrassment or hesitation to address this issue uh, frequently and it 's been estimated that Jesus talks about money, something and possession something like twenty five percent in twenty five percent of his teaching now i 've never checked that statistic for myself, but I know that there are frequent enough stories of his teaching into this issue to know how heavily important it was for him and why he kept coming back to it. And we see the urgency and the importance of it just in this account. And i tell you why. One way in which we see this is that it tells us that he's observing these people giving offerings. It says in verse 43 that he called his disciples to him. And he's speaking there about the 12 disciples. And there are only a few occasions in the Gospel of Mark when he very deliberately summons the 12 to him in this way. And on each of those occasions, it seems that Christ has in mind to underline to something very foundational, something very important. And uh, therefore, when Mark draws attention to this fact, he's helping to alert us to this reality of the seriousness and the weightiness of what Jesus is about to teach his disciples and how he wants to leave in their minds a teaching, a deposit, a way of understanding that will actually become foundational within his church. Another thing here is, of course, the way in which he then introduces his teaching. He says, truly I say to you, now if you've read the Gospels, this saying will be familiar to you, but every time Christ says it, it can be translated solemnly, I declare to you. Every time Christ says this, he is saying something very deliberate, something weighty, something with gravity, something that he wants us to pay attention to. And therefore for these reasons I think it's very obvious that when we read this story we're not dealing with a inconsequential um, narrative of something just, that just happened to take place um, before Jesus is crucified within a matter of days. But rather there is something very deliberate and uh, weighty about this moment. Something which ought to live with us and which ought to stir our hearts and our imaginations and, and and kind of evoke from us a response within our conscience where we are aware of what it is that God wants of us and desires of us. So you ask the question, why is it that Christ puts so much emphasis on money? Why does he put so much emphasis on giving? I think that the answer when you study the teaching of Jesus is that giving for Christ and the handling of possessions is for Jesus the most rapid diagnosis of the spiritual condition of the human heart. And we're aware because we're dealing with a widespread global disease right now that diagnosis is everything. The ability to test and trace, the ability to provide rapid tests is, is part of um, providing a response to the The situation at large and it's true across the board within medicine. Diagnosis is everything. If you can diagnose early, if you can diagnose accurately, then you have a chance of dealing with the condition, even very serious conditions or at least mitigating the effects of the condition and this is true in spiritual matters as well and it seems to me that when you read the teaching of Jesus, nothing is uh, more indicative of the health of a person's spirituality than the way in which they handle their money and indeed their generosity. And this is why elsewhere in the Gospels Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There you see him articulating the diagnostic power of money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And It seems to me that that can be reversed. It's a kind of equation that where your heart is that's where your treasure is and we can understand it as a two-way dynamic that you can follow the money as it says in um, the film Jerry Jerry Maguire and so it seems to me that our sensitivity around this area of money is um, actually an inappropriate sensitivity it's almost like we're holding our hands up and saying don't touch my idols And uh, Christ doesn't hesitate to touch the idols that exist within the human heart. And so his teaching penetrates and gets into the darker corners of our hearts and touches those sensitive areas. And this being one of the most sensitive areas that he can access. Now, let me just describe for you the context then of what we're dealing with here. Jesus, as I said, is in the temple courts of the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And he is particularly in the Court of the Women, which is the largest section of the temple. And in the Court of the Women, there were 13 offering boxes that lined the walls of the court. These offering boxes were shaped like um, a shofar, the the trumpet that was shaped in a ram's horn. And that's the, the design of these offering boxes, so that you could drop your coins into the narrow part and they would disappear into the larger section. You wouldn't be able, no one would be able to reach their hand into these horn shaped boxes and retrieve any of the money that goes into them. And there were thirteen of these boxes because each of them was a designated fund designed for the various offerings and gifts that, w- that God's people were called upon to give to at festival times and different times of the year. And there was one particular box which was just a general offering box, a free will offering box to which people would give randomly as indeed their hearts led them. And it seems to me that what is taking place here, remember this is Passover week, this is the greatest festival uh, in in the year, in the Jewish calendar. And on this particular day, many people are in Jerusalem milling about in the marketplaces and people have made a kind of pilgrimage to the city. So the temple is bustling with people and wealthy have come in from their places out in the countryside. Businessmen, wealthy landowners, various aristocrats are in town. And so it's a bit of a spectacle, I suppose, as you sit and observe to see the wealthy putting their money into the offering box. And that's what Jesus is watching. He's observing closely what is taking place. And it seems to me that that is exactly what he does in our own lives. Christ sits and he observes. And so the question that we want to ask then, as uh, we understand what's going on here, is what is it that Jesus is interested in when it comes to our giving? This is the all-important question. What is it that he's looking at? or looking for, in the life of the giver? What is it that he loves uh, to see in the heart of the giver? What is Christ interested in? And I want to show you four things that occur to me from this story um, that are true of what Jesus is interested in, in the life of the giver, in you and I, when we seek to give to God. And I want to show you the first thing, and uh, the most prominent thing, of course, is that Jesus is interested in your heart, much more than he's interested in the particular amounts that are given. And this occurs really at the very start when he says that, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Now, pause and meditate on that statement for a second and you'll quickly realize that it's a very strange thing to say. The wealthy could have been giving the equivalent of thousands of pounds of gifts into this offering box and this woman comes and gives a very small seemingly insignificant gift and Jesus says that she has given more than the rich people who are contributing out of their abundance and this is a strange statement because it's mathematically incorrect every year we're a charity the church exists as as a legal entity as a charity and every year we have to prepare the accounts to present to the charity commission this is part of our legal duty and we carefully go through the numbers. The finance team repair, prepares a report. And the sums have to be, uh, have to add up and they have to be honest and it has to be fully open so that the, it can be seen that there are no dodgy dealings going on in the church finances. And it seems to me that when Christ says here that the widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, it's evident that he's not using normal accounting procedure. And this is a very sobering reality because it means that Our gift on earth does not seem to correspond directly with the ledger in heaven of what the receipts given. And that is sobering. It makes you pause and question the reality of our gifts and what our gifts mean to God. And it means, of course, that on the surface of things, it's not the amount given that matters. This is the first principle here. It's not the amount in terms of an absolute or a total sum that's given that matters. It is much more to do with the heart behind the gift And that this is very obvious when you study the scriptures in general when it comes to giving. And it seems to me that therefore this is something that can be on the one hand very discouraging to us and on the other hand very encouraging to us. The way in which this is discouraging is if you have considered yourself to be a generous person, generous toward God, generous in in giving away your money, whether to him in in kingdom purposes or to others as a response of obedience to God. And you feel, I've given away so much money in my life. Even in this year, I've given away an abundant amount of money. And what this does is it causes the pause and question. There are the wealthy here in Jerusalem and they're floating about in their expensive robes and they're walking up to this offering box and they're pouring in cash and all these coins are making a loud noise as they're dropping into this offering box and jesus is observing this and he's saying it that it accounts to very little in the eyes of god in comparison with what this widow's given that's a sobering and a discouraging thing to say because it seems that jesus is just shrugging at the generosity of these wealthy people how can he do so the answer of course is that christ doesn't need our money I think that we tend to congratulate ourselves in our generosity if we think that we're somehow doing a favour, furthering the purposes of God in the world, that God somehow needs our money. And what's clear when you understand what Jesus is saying here is that he is indicating to us that God has no need of the wealthy people's cash and therefore it, it, he, he, in his ledger he counts it of these gifts as of less worth than the widow's gift. And that's a sobering reality. We cannot do God a favour. And even if we've given him very large sums of money, we ought to, in one sense, be discouraged by the fact that God's accounting methods do not align with ours. But the flip side to that, of course, is that this is profoundly encouraging. Because if he takes this very small gift from this widow, and Jesus says that it's worth more this is deeply encouraging to our hearts. Now think about this, this woman gave two lepta, which says amounts to a penny. And We're talking here, the amount she gave uh, w- the commentators tell us would have been about one sixty-fourth of a denarius. The denarius was a day's wage. So if you make the calculations roughly based on a kind of average earnings here in the UK we're saying that she gave maybe a couple of pounds, two or three pounds she put in the offering box. And Jesus takes a notice of this he listens to the clink of the coins as they fall into the box and he knows exactly how much he's given and he says that this is a very valuable gift to God and I think that you ought to take encouragement from this if you find yourself in a situation where you have little in this world and yet what you give you you seek to give to God whether you are in a position of being a student with no income or a single parent home where you you, you genuinely are counting the pennies, as it were. Or a young family where you found that you're, you're, you seem to, to not be able to have enough to, to clothe everybody uh, adequately or to pay for this, that, and the other, and yet you still want to give to God. It seems to me that in those situations, Jesus is saying that God counts these gifts as of more value than even the wealthy person who gives out of their abundance. And this is a deeply encouraging reality when you're in a state of hardship and of course this is a truth that we see uh, elsewhere in scripture in fact if you're an attentive bible reader you will have encountered this reality very early on in the scriptures one of the earliest stories in the bible is the offering of Cain and of Abel two brothers the sons of Adam who come and bring an offering to God in the form of a sacrifice and Cain is a worker of the ground in other words he grows crops and and Abel is a, a, a keeper of livestock he keeps sheep and they both offer out of their farming gifts to God. Cain offers crops. Abel offers uh, some livestock to God in a sacrifice. And what is fascinating there is it's not the amount given that registers with God. It says that the Lord had regard for Abel's offering and and it seems not for Cain's. And it's not the amount that's given. And it's not the fact that Abel gives livestock as opposed to crops that matters to God. It's rather a very small detail in the passage where it tells us that Abel gave from the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions, it says in Genesis 4, verse 4. And it seems to me that if you are understanding this rightly, what he's telling us is that it was Abel's heart that goes behind the gift. The fact that he's willing to give of the firstborn, in fact, the best aspects of the offering, the fat portions of the animal, the most delicious and nutritious part of the animal, he's giving to God in this act of sacrifice and something that therefore comes from a heart of love and a heart of worship. And so it's obvious to us very early on in the scriptures that two otherwise equivalent gifts are not equivalent because it all comes down to the heart that motivates the giving. And this is our first principle. Jesus is interested in our hearts much more than he's interested in the amounts given. Let me show you a second thing that comes out from this story. Jesus is interested in giving as a sacrificial act. We see this here at the beginning of verse 44. It says that he, 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 he analyzes the situation in this way. He says, they all, speaking of the rich, contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. And here he's beginning to explain this very obvious fact that the gift of the widow means more to her because she's given out of lack. And so what is given here really has the nature of a sacrifice in a way that is not true of the wealthy person's gift. It's not really a sacrificial gift in the same sense. And it's quite obvious then that Jesus is interested in our giving in the, to the degree to which our giving is a form of sacrifice to God. And when I thought about this, this weighed heavily with me and I think it's probably the most challenging and difficult aspect of what Jesus says here about giving. And part of the reason why it's challenging and difficult is because of our context. You think when you're a poor person such as this widow, where you really only have two coins that you can rub together, and that's all that she seems to have in this world, any gift in her situation is a sacrifice. And even more so when you know, she had two coins, she could have given one. And kept the other back to purchase a loaf or something, but instead she put both coins in the offering box, and any gift in her situation is by definition a sacrificial gift because she has nothing to fall back on, and she is denying herself she 's denying herself potentially the next meal uh, or a number of meals in order to give this gift she 's giving out of her poverty, Jesus tells us, and part of the reason why this is very difficult is because We live in an affluent society in which uh, the the definition of poverty is quite significantly different from what it was in Jesus' day. I'm not saying that poverty doesn't exist in our context, but it exists in a different form. It's very rare um, to be unable to put food on the table, to be unable to find clothes to wear or to have shelter over your head. And in fact, our definition of poverty, therefore, is shifted. And generally speaking, poverty is defined in different ways. And of course, there is such a thing as hardship in our context. But typically, hardship is, is, is doing without certain things which, at Jesus' day, and for this particular wo- woman, would have been considered unbelievable privileges like the ability to have a new smartphone or to be able to pay a sky subscription to watch sports or some other thing which we maybe consider part of a normal life here but which for them were unimaginable privileges and because of this increasing wealth within our society where even the poor um, you know defined relatively are actually much more wealthy as a general rule than, than what we're seeing in this woman's life because of this our definition of sacrifice also has shifted hasn't it and our definition of what it means to make a sacrificial gift to God has softened in comparison with what this woman was experiencing where she had to she really wasn't sure where her next meal would come from because of the generosity of this gift and what this does is and this is why I think this is such a challenging um, idea or principle uh, in what Jesus is saying here what this does is it exposes the way in which we are able to delude ourselves when it comes to giving. You know, we tell ourselves that the wealthier we are the more we're giving to God because in total and absolute sense we are giving more. But it seems that the wealthier you become the more difficult it actually becomes to give sacrificially. The more unlikely it is that your gift will have the character of a sacrifice in the way that we're seeing is true of this woman's gift here. Here. And I think this is true for all of us. You may have told yourself that as I grow wealthier, I will have the opportunity to give more to God. And of course this is true in the sense that if you're giving a certain percentage of your wealth to the Lord, the wealthier you get, the more that you can give to God. But it's not true in the sense that the wealth you get, that that your giving is likely to become more sacrificial. It seems to me to be very rare for a person to grow wealthier and yet to become more determined to give a sacrifice to God. uh, And so that their giving will impinge on their on their on their basic needs and their basic sustenance. And this is a real challenge for us in a context in which, you know, our needs are met, in which we have every basic need. We have shelter, we have food, we have clothing how can we then give a sacrificial offering to God? And this is something that I'm not sure that I can really adequately answer for us. I think it's something that you and I have to settle personally in our conscience before the living God. I can certainly tell you stories of people whose examples inspire, inspire and whose examples can exercise our minds and our consciences. And I'll tell you a few. One is C.H. Spurgeon. Now Spurgeon lived in the Victorian era, he led one of the first mega churches in the world, and um, here at Elephant and Castle, not far from where I am right now, and uh, his church was about 6,000 strong in an age without PA or microphones in which he was, his voice would, would, uh, would reach them all into every corner of that great cavernous building. And uh, he became very well known for his preaching. And his preaching was, was publicized through, through books. They, they were printed and sold. And, uh, and he became one of the best-selling authors of all time. My dad ac- accumulated uh, the entire set of Spurgeon sermons, which runs to 40 or 50 volumes, fat volumes with tiny, tiny print, or, that f- fills an entire bookcase. And so we're talking about a man who not only was prolific in authoring, but also sold an enormous amount of what he wrote. And so you can imagine that uh, he, he would have grown wealthy through this. And yet when Spurgeon died, he left almost nothing in term- and by way of an inheritance, very, very little money, for the simple reason that during his life, he gave away almost everything that came in. And his generosity was exceptional in that sense. Another story is John Wesley. John Wesley lived a century before Uh, In the 1700s, John Wesley was a traveling preacher. Now when John Wesley was a young man, I think in his 20s, he set a standard of living which he decided not to exceed. And so as he grew older and his income income increased, he did not experience or or allow himself to indulge a, a kind of lifestyle inflation where his standard of living also increased in line with his income. He continued to give, but gave more as his income increased. And so he set himself what he thought was a reasonable standard of living, and ability to survive and to live, and then he said everything else is God's. Another example is a man uh, who I admire who is a pastor um, who's alive today, who's a best-selling author, and um, he's written one of the best-selling books of all time, actually. And he decided as a young and unknown pastor to to give away a certain percentage of his income, but then to keep giving. And each year he would add an, another uh, 2 or 3%. And so as as he's grown wealthier over the years, his giving has increased to the point where he has reverse tithe. He keeps only 10% of his income and gives away 90%. And he's paid back his, his church for every, uh, every, every dollar that he was ever paid. And I, I think this is admirable. I'm not sure that I'll ever be the best-selling author that he is or be able to be in the position to do that. But nevertheless, it's an admirable ex- example of a man who's giving sacrificially out of abundance. And I tell you these stories not because I necessarily think that this is the right way for any one of us, but because these are... This is, this is an example of ways we can think, well, what does it mean to, to give sacrificially in a situation in which I have everything I need? What, how is it even possible for me to give a sacrifice to God? And I guess what I'm speaking about here is that the gifts which God honors are those which cost us something. They need to cost us something. There's something that David says when he was king. He, a plague had broken out because of his sin. And uh, the remedy was that he needed to offer to God a sacrifice. And he finds the plot of land and he wants to purchase the land so they can build an altar and so he can give a sacrifice. And the man who's, whose land it is says, let, let me give you the animals to make a sacrifice to God. And David's response is, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. He doesn't want to give God a gift Uh, that doesn't cost him anything and it seems that that's the principle that's at work here when Jesus is praising this woman for giving out of her poverty, that it costs her a great deal. Another wonderful and provocative example of this is Abraham who in Genesis 22 by this point is a wealthy man. He has servants, he has uh, enormous amount of livestock but the one area in which he's poor is in terms of his his, uh, his lineage. He has only one natural born son of his wife Sarah and this is his son Isaac. And God looks down at Abraham and he, asks, or he makes a request of him to give out of the one thing that he counts more precious than anything else in this world. He says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham's obedience... To be willing to offer his son there as a sacrifice to God is a perfect example of how even in his wealth he offers what costs him something, what is a true sacrifice to God as an act of worship. And of course we know that the story ends well and that God provides a ram as a substitute for Isaac so that Abraham does not have to slaughter his own son. And there we have a picture of the the cross, how God has provided Jesus as our substitute. But nevertheless... The essence of what I'm telling you is this. Jesus is interested in a gift that is a sacrifice. Now, let me bring you to a third principle we see here. It seems to me that Jesus is interested in giving that is total or entire or complete. And we see this here in in that he says of her that she gave out of her poverty and has put in everything she had. Jesus underlines this fact not only that she's poor, but that in her poverty, he says, she gave everything, that she gave all of her money. She had only these two small coins in her possession and she gave them all. It's a complete gift, an entire gift, a whole gift. This is what Jesus is honoring here. Now, I think the reason why we have to draw attention to this fact is because it exposes one of the ways in which our thinking goes badly wrong as Christians. We have a tendency when we become aware, you know, perhaps early on in the Christian life, that one of the duties of the Christian is to give back to God and that this is an expectation of God's and it's there in Scripture. One of the first questions that you will ask and a question that I've heard many times over the years is how much am I called to give to God? And the the quick answer, the answer that we tend to jump to is the obvious answer is, well, we give 10%, we give a tithe. Because that's the example of Abraham in Genesis 14. And it seems to be a pattern that we see through Scripture that 10% is a kind of a benchmark of how much we give. But I actually think that there's something wrong with the question and with the answer. Partly because it's not a very careful or close reading of Scripture. We know from from the law in the Old Testament that the Israelites gave more than 10%. They gave in excess of 20% when you add up the various offerings that they gave to God. But more importantly because in a way, the question and the answer both enforce a legalistic mentality when it comes to giving. A mentality in which we want to be able to tick off that duty as having, we've accomplished this, we've given our 10%, we've done our duty. And this is why I think the New Testament nowhere tells us to give a specific amount. That there is a sense in which this is left to the conscience. It's left to the... the to, to you to settle before God, and it certainly may be the case that ten percent is an interesting guideline from which to begin assessing this question, but it cannot be the answer that is uniform to every one of us, Sim- for one simple reason that we all have different amounts, so that if somebody who earns twenty thousand pounds a year gives ten percent and keeps ninety, that person maybe keeps only eighteen, thousand pounds to live on. another person earns a million and gives 10%, they, they get to keep £900,000 to live on. And you think these two situations are not equivalent in any sense whatsoever. And so it's an inadequate thing to answer the question purely in this way in terms of percentages. And I think the fundamental problem with this as a mindset is that we forget that giving to God is an act of worship, an act of love. And so if you reword the question say, well, how much worship does God want? How much love does God want from me? And then we answer the question, well, he wants 10%. You suddenly realize what a ridiculous way of asking and of answering the question around giving. And I think that we need to rethink our relationship with God in, in money more like marriage. You know, if, if a man marries a woman, there are certain questions I do not expect to hear out of his mouth. I don't expect him to ask me the question, how many days a week must I remain faithful to my wife? And I don't ask, expect him to ask, ask me the question how much of my money now belongs to my wife? Or to ask me which of the children will be mine and which of them will be hers? Because all these questions assume the idea that you can kind of partition your lives, that that you're only giving a part of yourself to your spouse. And of course, when you really consider what marriage is, marriage is the intermingling of two lives, so that the two become one flesh. It's the 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 earliest description of marriage in the bible of what it means to be married the two become one flesh in other words there is a sense in which you now become one person and to become one flesh means that there is no partitioning there's no sense in which a part of you is held back from the other and so all the questions have to be answered in this way you say how many days a week do you remain faithful every day how much money is now belonging to your wife all of it and hers is yours and, and how, which children belong to each of you? Well, all of your children belong to both of you entirely. There is no sense in which you can partition up a marriage in that way because you're now one flesh. And this is a very helpful way of thinking about our lives in relation to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We enter into a covenant relationship with Jesus when we, be, when we are saved, when we are converted, when we become Christian, when we put our faith in him. He's our husband and we as a church are his bride. And in this situation, we bring to him all of our debts uh, accrued in terms of our sins and transgressions. And he brings to us all of his righteousness in terms of his record in his life and the gifting of his blood on the cross. And in that sense, we, are t- we experience this one flesh union with him in which all the benefits that are Christ become ours, all the treasures of heaven become our inheritance as his people. And so within that context, you suddenly begin to realize that it is quite a wrong mindset and quite a wrong mentality to, to start with the question, well, how much? I'm not saying that the question is unimportant, But I think we have to examine where it's coming from because to enter into this relationship with Jesus is to recognize everything that I have belongs to him. It's merely a question of how I steward it so that part of it is stewarded to give to the kingdom and part of it is stewarded to take care of myself, my family and my business affairs. And it's all under the interest of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we meant to literally give him all I mean, Jesus praises this here of the woman. He says she gave everything she had. In a way, the question has changed when you recognize that all that you have is his anyway. But I also think that we shouldn't take the force out of the question. This isn't the only occasion when Jesus exhorts or praises the giving of everything. He does so, remember, in Mark chapter 10 with the rich young ruler, where he says, in answer to the question how he should inherit eternal life he says go, "Go, give away everything you have to the poor and then come and follow me and I think that we're too quick to dismiss the notion that everything that we have is God's and for him to steward and do with as he pleases we need to have that mentality that it's, he has a claim on everything every single last penny that we own and some for some that may well mean giving it all to God in this way but it certainly means stewarding it for his designs, his ends, his desires. Now let me bring you to a final point. Jesus is interested in, i described to you that he's interested in the heart, not the amount. He's interested in a sacrifice. He's interested in it being a complete gift, an entire gift. But there is a final element here, which is that he's interested in faith. He's interested in the element of trust that goes behind the gift. And I see that here in these final words he says, when he says how she put in everything she had, and then he adds all she had to live on. And he's drawing attention to this fact that in order for this widow to give these two small coins to God, she had to exercise the spiritual dynamic of faith. Or of, and what is faith? Faith is trust. She has to trust God that he will provide for her that he will supply her with her next meal, that he will will be a father to her or a husband to her who will make sure that she doesn't go short. And this seems to me to be the most exciting or the most exhilarating aspect of giving in Scripture because we enter into this trust relationship with God in which we recognize that he he is an abundant giver, that he loves to take care of his children. And so to give away is to enter into the privilege of exercising faith and putting God to the test as it said in the book of Malachi we put him to the test in the, in the in the only way in which we're invited to test him in scripture which is to test him financially to say i'm going to give generously to you with a confident expectation that you will look, take care of me and remember that the Bible says that God loves faith, that it's faith that pleases God. And it seems to me that this has to therefore be the most important a- aspect of her generosity here. More important than everything else I've described to you, the central thing which gives Christ pleasure on that day, which he smiles upon and which he praises in the life of this widow, is the faith that he sees within her heart. And he has to exercise faith in two dimensions. One is faithful now, because we have needs here in these bodies that we need God to provide for us in the here and now. But it's also faith that's exercised into the future and into eternity. Every Christian who gives to God does so in obedience to Christ's call to lay up treasure in heaven with the recognition, the awareness that every gift we give to God is is repaid in eternity and by way of an inheritance in heavenly dwellings. Now, the question then is, how do we do this and to what extent is this true how does this become true when we're giving out of a place of abundance as well as of poverty it's easy to see how this woman could exercise faith that day because these these coins represented loaves they represented the opportunity to eat but how do you and I exercise faith in God if our giving doesn't necessarily impact whether we're going to eat the next meal what about the rich in other words I wanted to read to you just a few verses from 1 Timothy where Paul addresses this very question. He says at the end of 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, I don't know whether you consider yourself to be rich, but I think that by the measures of the age in which Paul wrote this, 98% of us in our church fall in this category of being rich. There's no question in my mind that that's true. He's speaking to you. And I think that when you, when you understand and read between the lines of what he's saying here, Paul is exhorting such a level of generosity among God's people that they must exercise faith. He's saying give to the point which you then need to exercise faith, which is why he reminds the rich not to trust in the uncertainty of riches on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, he says. So he wants us to give to the point where we have to trust God in this life in the here and now, but also give to the point where we need to trust God for a future inheritance, which is better than the ways in which we can indulge ourselves in this life, which is why he reminds us of that future reward. He says, thus storing up for, the, for themselves uh, treasure as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's an invitation, in other words, to weigh up, do I want to uh, spend all of my money in this life on the comforts of this world so as to, so as to, to live a happy life in the here and now full of pleasure and, and, and hedonism and enjoying every good thing in the here and now? And I don't think that the Bible is against the enjoyment of pleasure to the glory of God. But this is the question we have to weigh. Am I, is this the primary purpose that God has given me this money for? Or has he primarily given it to me so that I can lay it up in heaven and stir, store up treasures with God in Christ in a way that will, will, is, like a, is like the most intelligent investment you'll ever make? And therefore, when you look at it this way, when you look at it in terms of exercising faith in God, it actually reshapes the way we think about sacrifice. We think about sacrifice primarily in terms of doing without and inflicting hardship on ourselves and and exercising in self-denial. But when you reframe the entire situation in terms of the exercise of faith, you recognize that suddenly this isn't really about self-denial. This is about smart investment within the kingdom of God. It's about greater gain. It's about the opportunity not just to enjoy what meager things we can enjoy in this life, tainted as they are by sin and tainted by the incompleteness and the fact that nothing ever seems to fully satisfy. And to weigh that up against the opportunity of the privilege of giving so generously that we have to rely on God and experience his generosity in our lives here and now. And we have to trust him that our heavenly treasures, the 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 opportunity to enjoy his lavish goodness into eternity will far eclipse anything that we could enjoy in this life. I want to say a few words of encouragement as we close. I've been describing to you the various principles which undergird the teaching of Jesus here and how he exhorts and leaves this lasting memory in his disciples before he goes to the cross. About generosity. But my final encouragement to you is this that Jesus never demands more than he himself is willing to give. And when you rethink through all these principles that I've described to you, every one of them is true of Christ himself to the nth degree, to, in an absolute or perfect sense. Think about that first one or what it means that God is interested in the heart more than the amount. Christ's heart was fully engaged in the giving of himself on the cross as an act of love to the Father and perfect obedience to the Father but also as a demonstration and the perfect example of his love for us as his people. Christ's heart was there in the cross when he gave. I mentioned to you how giving is to be sacrificial that she gave out of her poverty and you think there has never been a more sacrificial moment in the history of the world than when Christ the perfect man gave himself entirely upon the cross and endured pain and endured the torment of, of, of our sin being laid upon him. He entered into sacrifice in a most perfect sense there upon the cross when he died for us. You think about this element that I've mentioned to you about how he calls us to give completely, how it says that she gave everything she had. And you ask, well, did Jesus hold anything back? And the answer is emphatically no both in his life and in his death, these years lived for us, these years of obedience, these years of entering into the suffering of life in order to live an obedient life. He gave himself completely. There was a sense, no sense in which even a part of him was held back. He gave himself entirely as the husband to his people. And this is true, of course, when he, when he went to the cross. He didn't hold back any part of his being, any part of his life, any part of his heart when he died there on the cross for us. And the final thing I want to say to you is that the giving of himself on the cross was was an act of faith. When Jesus calls upon us to exercise faith and he draws attention to the fact that this woman gave all she had to live on. It was an act of trust in the Father. Remember, remember that when Jesus gave himself upon the cross it was the ultimate act of faith. It tells us in Hebrews 12 that he, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You may have missed that little phrase there. It says, it describes, it explains for us why he went to the cross for us. It says, for the joy that was set before him. In other words, even though temporarily Christ gave up everything in that moment when he went to the cross, he didn't do so purely as an act of self-denial. He didn't do so as an act of, of um, self-inflicted pain he did so rather for the prospect of greater gain in eternity so that he could inherit for himself a people a bride a, a a heavenly host that is you and I the church of God he purchased us by the giving of his blood and this is the principle he lays down for us we give to God in the sure and certain hope that we can never outgive Him, but that He is a generous and loving Father. We give to Him for the joy that is set before us. And so I want to leave you on that note. The Lord Jesus Christ has set you a pattern here, and He has not demanded more of you than He Himself was willing to give by His life, by His death, and by His resurrection. Let's pray, and let's reflect, and let's take the moment here to um, consider what it is that Christ is wanting of us, what he's desiring of us in terms of our money, in terms of our generosity, in terms of our giving and what it is he requires. Let's pray. Father, Lord, you know the, the desires and the fears that are surfaced whenever we talk about money. There are things we long for which seem only accessible through wealth There are things that we're afraid of uh, through lack or shortage. And Lord, it seems that money has such a powerful hold on the hearts of every one of us, Lord. It's very hard to be disentangled from the power of money. And Lord, we want to acknowledge today, firstly we want to acknowledge the wonderful example of this woman and we want to honour her. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for drawing attention to her as an example to all of us. How she puts us to shame by the way in which she gave you those two small coins. Because she loves you. I thank you, Lord, that over the years, that small gift that she gave has no doubt released billions for the kingdom of God as consciences have been stirred and desires been provoked to seek to outgive ourselves and outgive others for the glory of God i thank you for that lord but we come to you now and lay before you our desires and we lay before you our fears my prayer is lord that you will take hold of our hearts in such a way that we will not be able to partition our possessions to think this much is mine and this much is yours but that we'll rather look at it all and say God we thank you that you've given us these things to steward for your glory. I pray that you will stir up exceptional generosity within our people. Generosity toward one another. Generosity towards those who are hard up. Generosity to your kingdom work. I pray Lord God that you'll stir up lavish giving. And that, Lord, you'll teach us how to exercise faith and so, Lord, meet our needs. You know, Lord, that we live in an expensive city, that there are very real expenses that we need to to meet. But you know, Lord, also how this city distorts our notions of what is necessary, what is needful in this life. I pray, Lord, you'll help us to just offer before you our lives afresh and to acknowledge your lordship over our wallets. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.